regular listener to the Lean Out podcast, you know that it has not been a good couple of years for the media. From the lab leak theory to the Hunter Biden laptop, we in the press have gotten a lot of big stories wrong. Well, my guest on the program today is a media veteran, and he has some insights on how this all has happened and where we go from here. Steve Krakauer is the executive producer of The Megan Kelly Show and the host of The Fourth Watch Podcast. His new book is Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Steve Krakauer is my guest today on Lean Out. Steve, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me, Tara. Really great to have you on. Uh, The debate over the state of the media is quite polarized, and your book manages to move beyond that. So I thought it was really significant that you only took on the record interviews and that you had interviews with a huge range of media people, left and right, and that you yourself have experience throughout the media ecosphere, also on left and right working as an executive at CNN, and now also in the independent media as executive producer of The Megyn Kelly Show, which I have appeared on. Yes. And you also stress in the book that what you want here is a healthy mainstream media, that criticisms of aspects of the media are not indictments of the whole. So let's start here. Let's start with the Hunter Biden laptop story. Why did you choose to open your book with that? Yeah, I I think it was such a an eye opener for me. I mean, I I lay out in the book we, we start there and then we kind of go backwards and and look at really 2015 through 2020, 2021. But this this came at the end of the Trump era. It was really, you know, the the end of of one era but but the beginning of another and something that I think actually is more pernicious than even some of the mistakes and incompetence and and you know the the bias coverage that we saw during the Trump years this was something different because yes it was the coverage was bad and as i lay out you know getting the story wrong only kind of taking one side but it was the censorious nature of it the what i describe later in the book as anti-speech activism that we saw which i think really became the defining narrative of the press over the last few years you look at stories like with covid and others that i lay out that was the it felt like almost the beginning of it something really new and different and it actually it was the first thing i did in the book was um in writing the book was going back and reliving that and and trying to piece together what happened there and 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 it was shocking to me even to see as I went back to it, you know, the idea that yes, the the, the you know Twitter took unprecedented action, um, as we now learn from the Twitter files, you know, in at least a collaboration with the FBI in 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 this idea of locking this down, that this was potential Russian disinformation. So there was a partnership there, but also with the media because the New York Post was locked out of their Twitter account, the link was unable to be sent just a shocking overreach by Twitter, something that has never happened before that and never happened since. And there was not universal outrage by the press in the way that I think that there really should have been. I, I lay out the story of Jake Sherman, who who's at Punchbowl News, who's really a, you know, he's a normal journalist. He's not an overly partisan guy, but he linked to the story and he said, oh, I wonder if the Biden campaign will respond to this. And then of course, his, he was locked out of his Twitter account because he linked to the New York Post. 
And so he deleted it and he was able to get back into his, his account, but he wasn't outraged by that or or at least jarred by the experience. No, he then laid out in a three tweet thread, which was full of misspellings. I mean, really like just full panic about how sorry he was that he had dared to do this and that, oh, you know, now I've learned my lesson essentially. I mean, just crazy behavior by a media that should have seen this as really damaging to the First Amendment and to the free flow of ideas and free speech. You don't have to say the New York Post is definitely right, even though they were, as we now know. At the very least, you have to defend their their right to publish something like this and to not be seen in this censorious way. So so I, I think it's just such a such a telling story of where the rest of the industry went. And the fact that they weren't outraged is something that really bothered me and I think really kind of shows where we are with the press today. Mm. Interesting detail in the book. You you interviewed Tucker Carlson, and he says he knew the laptop was real because he saw one of his own emails to Hunter Biden. Right. So Tucker had quit drinking. Hunter famously, of course, struggling with substance use, and I guess Tucker was was communicating with him on that. I thought that was such an interesting detail, but but also just to raise a point that Ben Smith, formerly of the New York Times, raised with you. He he says this story still stands out because it's such an isolated incident because there has been no other major suppressions of journalism that favored the conservative viewpoint since. Do you agree with that? No, I I don't think that that's I, I I think that it stands out because it was just the most obvious, blatant one. And and I do think, you know, Ben is also pointing to the fact that it was a few weeks before an election. So there we also got that this October surprise. And so yeah, we have not seen that. We'll see what happens in a couple of years here in, in 2024 when we have our next election and, and see what happens if anyone's learned any lessons from that. Um, but no, I, I think we see this in case after case, maybe on a smaller scale of of the absolute overreach and and lack of interest in the press in in calling it out and in fact joining in, in with it i call it the elite censorship collusion racket because i think that it is whether consciously or subconsciously the media themselves is joining with tech platform censors and with intel agencies and government forces to lock down and clamp down on speech it happens in story after story with covid I, there was the disinformation dozen that was highlighted by the the Biden administration. And they were then in coordination, um, shut down on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And the media was not, again, not, it was just... Uh, a participant in this. I mean, they they were passing this along as if it was as if it was a reality and totally fine with with the, the suppression. So so no, I I think it was maybe the most blatant example, but it certainly is was just one of many that we've seen before that and since. Hmm. And just just to back up just slightly, so the, in the book you outline five major problems with the current media landscape. And and one of the first ones that you focus on is geographical bias. So uh, the public will often express that they're concerned about political bias. But you say geographical bias is actually key to understanding the mess that we're in. I want to refer to a quote from the book. When you have a geographic bias and are tasked with covering a country that's unfamiliar to you, journalism becomes more like anthropology. You're on a mission to explore new cultures and report back about the strange locals you're encountering. Walk me through your thinking on this geographical bias. Yeah, to be honest, you know, Tara, this is something that I've I've really has become clear clear to me since I left New York myself. You know, I I, I grew up in the East Coast, it was New Jersey and and went to Syracuse University in New York and then I lived in New York City for a long time working at a variety of outlets. And there was a a general 
I don't want to say group think because maybe that's a little bit too much, but but there was there were certainly blind spots that existed that I wasn't even necessarily aware of myself until I got outside of the physical geography of where so much of the media is centered in, in New York and DC. I describe it as the Acela media because you know the Acela that goes between New York and DC. Everyone takes, you know, in the media industry, you go back and forth. It's the fast train that goes between the two cities and you miss so much. Um, and the truth is, there's always been political bias in the American media, corporate media structure. The the people that I worked with at CNN when I was there generally leaned left. They generally would vote for Democrats when they voted at all. And at the same time, there was a, a mission where, unlike other occupations, you try to put your own personal beliefs aside for the greater good of objectivity and getting the story right and showing both sides and being fair. So they were able to sort of suppress their political bias in the service of, of you know, telling the, the true story. Um, and, and that has always existed. So something else major has changed since then. And I believe it, it's the geography side of it. Yes, the media has largely been in these, in these, you know, general centers for a while, but it's gotten worse and it's gotten worse for specific reasons. Like the fact that when Donald Trump was elected in November of 2016, it was such a shock to the system. And there was a brief moment of introspection. How do we get this so wrong? But that quickly morphed into not just how do we get it wrong, but why did these people put him here? And it was not just an attack um, this fight that they were in with Trump himself or the Trump administration, but also turning against more than half the country that don't see the world in the way that they do, that there is this existential threat that they were fighting against to, to save democracy and go through Watergate every day. No one, most of the people that I encounter here in Dallas and Texas who are not overly political, maybe lean left, maybe lean right, they are not thinking about the the world during those years in the same way that the media did. And so it is ge geographic as well, where people are complicated and have messy points of views. That is not reflected in what we see in our corporate press. And you point in the book to the work of uh, Selena Zito as a kind yeah. of counterpoint for this. Tell me about what she's done in her reporting. Selena's been great. And as you mentioned, you know, I, I I talked with Selena for the book. I talked with with more than two dozen people in in the industry, uh, including places like the New York Times and Washington Post and MSNBC. Um, there are good people at all these outlets that I think are are at least thoughtful and and curious and and are trying to to fix the problems of trust that exist in, today. Um Selena's someone who who saw the Trump wave coming perhaps better than anyone else because Unlike the uh, the anthropologists uh, in the media that uh, that kind of helicopter into a place and go to a diner and talk to a few people and then you know helicopter back to uh, their their newsroom, Selena is someone who drives through the country, drove through the country in 2015 and 2016, and talked to people all across the country and saw it coming and documented that in her reporting. And you know she tells me a story in the book about how she was hired at CNN specifically for that reason, really. You know, by Jeff Zucker describes talking to the newsroom in a kind of town hall to describe what 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 they might be missing. But then she also says very quickly, shortly after he took office, she would get it would go from instead of just being asked. What do these people think? What do these Trump supporters think? To why do they think this? How could they possibly believe these lies? And she's like, I don't know. I'm just a reporter. But Selena is someone who's not an ideological person. She's someone who, as she describes in the book, her bias is towards the people of the country. She cares deeply about the people of the country. And her point of view was not represented in in the in the subsequent years of of these Trump years. And so 
And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, she's a great example of someone who's doing great work and the corporate press would be smart to listen to. They had a brief moment where they did, and then they just turned against it also. Mm. And it, another thing I wanted to sort of, another thread I wanted to pull is this sort of conspiratorial tone in the public's perception of us in the media. Anyone who works on uh, questions of media criticism will encounter this. But you make the argument that actually laziness and incompetence is way more to blame. There's a great quote from Josh Rogan from the Washington Post. I don't think there was a conspiracy in the media. I think it's basically a mix of source bias, confirmation bias, anti-Trump bias, fighting the right-wing attacks on us bias, and general incompetence. I've worked in eight different newsrooms in 18 years, and I've seen all of that in one degree or another. Um Walk me through, why is this not a conspiracy in the media? Yeah, Josh is great. I mean, I think Josh, uh, you know, he, he he's someone who is a really trustworthy voice um, and has done great work specifically on, on the lab leak theory, which is really kind of what he was referring to in that quote, but really across the board on COVID and on China. And he's fearless in a way that I think so many in the industry, not just are incompetent, uh, in some cases, and not not so great at their job and lazy, but are fearful, um, but are really you know fearful of of the backlash that they might get for doing anything that deviates from the consensus. And yes, I, I think that there are certain stories like the Hunter Biden laptop story where we see a real collusion, a, a real conspiracy that that emerges between media outlets, the institutional elite, and and tech platforms and government officials. That is true. That happens sometimes, but. More often than not, in, in in little cases and in even cases that are bigger, it's a much more complicated and nuanced situation. And yeah, look, I I think in in other occupations, you know, if you had a plumber, you know, you need a plumber, you would go to maybe look at Yelp and you'd say, okay, you know, this one has good reviews, this one, this one seems to be not so good at their job, and this one's lazy. And then you pick the ones, and and the ones that are the best would get weeded out. They would rise to the top. They would get the most work. Journalism industry doesn't work that way. In fact, I, I think it almost is the opposite. You know, a lot of times the people who are the the least competent, who are the worst at their job, get rewarded in very real ways because they are good at other aspects of what it is these days to be a journalist, whether it's through their Twitter accounts and becoming kind of influencers themselves, accruing real power, saying the right things in certain situations. That's that's not great. You know, the the business is is hurt by those who are not as good rising to the top by there not being a real meritocracy. And so in story after story, I, I, I give it in the book, you know, it, little things. I mean, stupid corrections of of st stupid stories uh, like on, on CNN, just, just one small example. CNN published a story uh, after the January 6th uh, riot in the Capitol about Congressman Ted Lieu, who was a uh, Democratic uh, congressman who's a regular on cable news and green rooms, you know, a real cozy guy with uh, with the media members. And they described how he was hiding in an office and then he grabbed a crowbar and went to go and in, into the hallway to potentially encounter the mob. And you're picturing this like, oh, this is like the walking dead here, you know, Ted Lieu with his crowbar. Four journalists were on the story, bylined on the story. How many editors saw this? Well, a few hours later, the story was corrected. No, he grabbed a pro bar energy bar and went into the into the hallway. So it's like, I mean, it's it's totally ridiculous. And it's just a sign. This is not some big conspiracy between Ted Lieu's office and the CNN to make him look like this hero. It's just general incompetence and not thinking through the story. And the media should and, and you know, the media does that and the, and the public should understand that. 
And you just alluded to the idea of coziness to power, which is another thread in your book, and that media power players are now in close proximity to corporate and government decision makers. They're no longer really aligned with the interests of ordinary people. So I think there's something that's sort of hard to square with that idea and the state of journalism, which is a collapsing industry, a lot of precarious work, pretty low wages for the majority of workers. How do we reconcile these two ideas that we're underpaid (laughs) and that we're also somehow elites? Yeah, I, it shows up in, in interesting ways. You know, I, I, in chapter seven of the book, which which is about coziness to power um, or coziness with power, I, I give a couple examples up there. You know, I start kind of with the Harvey Weinstein story. I speak with Rich McHugh in the book, who's done great work. Rich was a longtime investigative reporter and producer at outlets like ABC News and NBC News. And he worked very closely with Ronan Farrow on the Harvey Weinstein reporting at NBC. And this has been reported elsewhere, but Rich described how his great work and you know which is not a star necessarily he's not you know making massive amounts of money and he's doing really you know work that is that it, it takes a lot of guts to do and it was suppressed at, a, at an outlet like NBC and he saw for the first time that you know Harvey Weinstein could essentially assert his power over NBC and in some ways I would say kind of uh, blackmail as Rich describes over what he knew about what was happening at NBC with Matt Lauer to get a story to not be published. Um, ultimately, Ronan went to the New Yorker. He published it there. We know we know that story got out there. But through that, through Jeffrey Epstein, which I lay out in the way we've learned that ABC News killed the Jeffrey Epstein story that Amy Robach had because of their ties in some way or wanting to make sure that they didn't um, upset the Prince Andrew side of that story. You know, we see it in story after story where it's the corporate interests of these outlets that are becoming on the on the corporate media side larger and larger. I mean, the the behemoths are getting bought by other behemoths, and now the 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 interconnectedness is a mess in ways that never was before. And so, because of that, yeah, it it, it boil it comes down the line. You know, so so the average journalist, who you're right, is not making tons of money, is not necessarily cozy with power themselves, but they work for these organizations if they work in these corporate media institutions where they can't do the work that they they want to do unfettered by the corporate interests that are involved there. And that's, I think, why we've seen the rise of independent media really accrue not just financial strength, but real power because the audience sees it. They know they have other choices and they don't need the corporate press that's so tied into these, these elite institutions to, to you know, serve them anymore. And I did want to ask you about independent press. You're on Substack as well, as am I. And there's a great Ethan Strauss quote in the book. The funny thing in media is that you can be a contrarian by saying stuff 70% of people agree with. How do you see the Substack phenomenon tapping into this? Yeah, I I think Substack's fantastic, uh, mainly because Substack kind of is hands off about everything. Um, You know, it's, it's, you would think that this is a business model that should work. I mean, you know, Substack is not putting their their you know thumb on the scale in any capacity. You know, people are are publishing things that are from the far left progressive side and from the you know far right MAGA side and everywhere in between things that are not ideological. That is. That's that's great. I mean, I, I think that there is there we've seen this beyond Substack also, YouTube and and with you know social media, with podcasts. There is just so much more opportunity for independent media to accrue an audience and to prove out that that there is, you know, a connection that you can make with an audience that is deeper 
and feels much closer together. You know, in really throughout Uncovered, what I try to do is show the way that the corporate press botched some of the biggest stories of the past few years and why, and, and get out exactly what happened, but why they did it, why they got it wrong. And I do so because I want to arm readers with the idea of here's some tools to sniff out when the corporate press is lying or misleading in the future, but also to note when you're seeing from independent media sources how they're getting it right, how they're serving you. Um, because I think that through independent media, we can bypass the corporate press entirely. Many people are already doing that. Um, but if you can if you can get the tools to recognize what's happening, you can see just how valuable places like an Ethan Strauss, who's also on Substack, can be because, yeah, they're not they're not just saying like completely outlandish things. They're saying things that are just true and most people know them to be true. And yet for whatever reason, as I lay out in the book, that they, they're not saying it in these corporate media institutions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us on Substack have exited from the mainstream media, but some of us on Substack have also been purged. And you you do write about these kind of great newsroom purges that we've seen yeah. in the last couple of years, especially in 2020. One of the big ones was the ousting of James Bennett over the Tom Cotton opinion piece during the George Floyd unrest. And you interviewed Sean McCreish, who was at the New York Times during that kind of pivotal moment. What did you learn about that crisis at the Times? Yeah, Sean. Uh, of all the people that that went on the record with me, you know, Sean's someone I don't know personally, but I have to say, you know, it, it's it's. I don't think it's overstating to say that it took some bravery on Sean's part to to speak on the record with me um, about what happened internally there. Sean was an opinion staffer at the time and describes in detail what was happening in these Zoom meetings and Slack conversations in the Times and the feeling that happened there also. You know, this was, it was a very, you know, people were on edge, right? This was June of 2020. COVID was really in, in its height, especially for people that are in New York and, and in the in the East Coast when it was, you know, at its worst. And you also have everyone kind of locked in their apartments and spending a lot of time on Twitter. And then you have George Floyd and you have the social justice protests and then the subsequent riot offshoots that come from that. And Tom Cotton publishes an op-ed who, you know, this was, First of all, his third op-ed he had published for the New York Times, as I write, is not a, a new thing. Tom Cotton, a senator, a Republican senator, who is you know, very well-educated and everything. And the, the op-ed itself, I think, I personally didn't agree with that much, but it was it was not what you wouldn't expect from Tom Cotton. It was basically, for the riots, maybe we should get the federal government involved and in, in federal forces in, in stopping this because the local officials are not being able to do it. And it started this wave that we saw play out publicly uh, because on Twitter, staff from the New York Times, lower level staff in many instances, were able to say things like publishing this put the lives of my, you know, of other staff members in danger by making it that level of just complete overreach in terms of what publishing a column would do. And they were able to get action. And as Sean describes, these meetings where you know James Bennett would would be attacked in in this incredible way by the by the staff themselves. Sean describes one person saying, you know, crying on the Zoom meeting and saying, you know, my friends won't talk to me because I work for the New York Times because of publishing this op-ed. I mean, it was crazy. And they were able to get James Bennett pushed out and fired. I also described that they used to call them op-eds. And now the New York Times I would say as a result of this calls them guest essays. Like this is just a guest here. You know, they, they're not really welcome. They're not part of our family. You know, they're not part of the club. Uh, and of course, what, what does it do? And what kind of chilling effect does it have on the types of columns that a New York times publishes? So 
all of that's to show that the kids run the newsroom these days. You know, especially if you can happen at the New York Times, it can happen anywhere. And you have people now who are make up the journalism industry who don't understand what journalism is about. And this is something that Sean talks about also. But if you can really think that publishing a column by a senator in the United States is dangerous in, in any capacity, you don't understand the fundamentals of journalism and of free speech. And, and that's really alarming. Mm. And at the end of the book, you outline a number of recommendations for, for helping us to rebuild the health of the media, reestablish trust. Some of these include media decentralization, more ombudsmen, less university education for reporters, a focus on intellectual diversity, edicts for news gathering journalists to stop tweeting incessantly. I want to focus on intellectual diversity because it's, it's a focus of mine in particular, but it is yeah. hard to measure and it's hard to achieve. How do you see newsrooms going about recruiting more diverse viewpoints? Yeah, it, it is definitely hard to achieve, but I do think that it can come with two of the other factors that you mentioned. You know, I, I think if you, w- one of the positives of the pandemic is that we've seen that work from home is really possible in certain industries. And, and certainly I would say journalism is one of them. And so if you don't require your journalists to go and move to New York or DC or wherever your home base is, and that's likely your home base, if you're in the corporate media, and you have them in those communities that they, even if they they grew up in, um, or put them in a new community that uh, that they're they're not used to, that inevitably will expose them to the kind of intellectual diversity that you don't get when you're sitting in these in these hubs in these bubbles. So that that's the first one. And then the other one you, you mentioned, yeah, a lack of of journalism degrees. Uh, I, I think it's about finding and recruiting people who don't set out to be journalists, frankly. I, I I think that when you, today, because you can see what you can become when you're a, quote, journalist, that you can be a, a sort of social media star and an influencer and grow a big following and get cable news contracts and book deals, the, the incentives of the industry can recruit the the wrong type of people. And so if you can find people that are curious, that are interested in in telling stories that are not interested in becoming stars themselves, you will inevitably find a more intellectually diverse group of people that way, because that encompasses a lot more kinds of people in the world than just a certain one. And again, it's not ideological. There, you could they, they could certainly be voting for Democrats also, but if they can have different sorts of, of experiences, of life experiences, I mean, I know a lot of people here in Texas who are big Second Amendment supporters but vote for Democrats or are you know gay married and vote for Republicans. It's just if you can find people that don't want to adhere to the consensus that often it gets recruited in in New York and DC newsrooms, you'll get a lot more diversity of of thought. Mm. And on that note, I I thought it was really interesting that on your Fourth Watch podcast, you recruited Brian Stelter to interview you about your book. It was a really interesting, good faith conversation, very different viewpoints. And I want to end on this. Um, I I agree with your diagnosis in this book, and I agree with your prescription. But what if we're wrong? What What if the problem is Fox News and misinformation and really bad faith actors on the right? What if we're wrong? Yeah, it's it's something I I actually I have a chapter, you know, chapter 13, which is on the other hand, and I, I based it around a conversation I had with an executive um, who I don't name, but I, I don't quote him either. Um, and it's about the idea of like, yes, I think there are lots of people, particularly in the media industry uh, who, and in the media criticism industry that would say the whole premise of the book is wrong. It's it is 
it is the they sure there's some problems on the margin that you're getting at but the single problem is the is fox news and its grip on the republican party and by extension half the country and i i, I would say that I don't think that it's entirely without merit to say that there are certainly problems on the on the right side of the aisle let's say right with with the with Fox News and with the the way as we're learning with some of these these text messages through the Dominion lawsuit that there is one thing being said behind the scenes and another thing that's being aired on TV. I think it's a complicated story the Dominion one, but I also think that that absolutely there is one of the reasons I I have respect for Brian and I I enjoyed our conversation. I've known Brian for 15 years and I do think he we disagree on the fundamentals, but I don't think it's without merit to say that you know Brian has some points of view that I think are are right, you know, and I think are it's good that he's out there. Um, the the truth is though, I think there's a lot of people like Brian, you know, and that point of view that are being represented, that are that are getting the word out about that side of it, and so that's one of the reasons why I don't focus as much on that is because I think that's kind of covered. I try to be a counterbalance in a lot of ways to to the the overall media criticism that in the in the ecosystem here in America uh, because I don't think it's represented and I think it's valuable also. And the other, last thing I would just say is that I I think that there's something about the the cultural cachet of a place like CNN or a place like the New York Times that even though Fox News has massive viewership and massive readership it doesn't reach that level because it's not thought about the same way because when when people even fox news viewers in the old days and i'm talking 10 years ago wanted to know what was going on in the news you know the big news happens they can go to places like a new york times or cnn to get the news because they're just boring old cnn boring old new york times that is still valuable and that is something that doesn't translate on the right in the same way. Yeah, there's problems there, but these are really important institutions more broadly. And I think that that's why I, I care so much about making sure that they actually have trust and, and deserve trust. Mm. Well, it is such an interesting book. I really enjoyed speaking about it with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks, Derek. Great talking to you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>